Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Happy Monday, my dearest podcast listeners. I have legitimately been counting down the days until I could release this conversation. Um, I feel like I probably say before every episode how excited I am to share these interviews, and it's true. I always am. Um, But I think there are just some conversations that occur in such an organic and fluid way and um, happen in my life and even collectively at what feels like such an opportune time. Uh, And this was one of those conversations. It was funny because uh, Mark, who I interviewed today, uh, Mark Jones, he lives in London. And so we had to record the episode fairly early in the morning, my time. So 9am, which is early for me, at least to get out of bed and (laughs) get to my computer and be conscious enough to be engaged in a discussion. Um, But it was early and the way that my desk is set up, it's facing uh, east where the sun rises. And so the sun was kind of glaring in my face the whole time. So I had to sort of hang up like I honestly hung a napkin, a cloth napkin up on my window to prevent me from looking like squinty eyed the whole time. But there was something about just like the bright light and the sun rising and sort of seeing the um, fog dissipate over the uh, mountains in Topanga Canyon where I live. And sort of watching that all unfold while we were, Mark and I were having this conversation about like human evolution and um, faith and meaning and change. And it was fucking magical. Um, And I feel like I will always have that sort of physical and visual image for myself around this conversation and wanted to share it with you too. So that you can kind of have the same (laughs) image in your head of um, the day beginning and the sun rising and... Our conversation, you know, talks a lot about, you know, what it means to be a human as best as we can evaluate that as humans. And uh, I think they're really important conversations to be having, especially at this time in our world. So I, uh, I, I had a reading as I, Mark is an astrologer, a psychologist, a lot of things, but we had a reading, I had a reading with him last summer. Um, and this was maybe last June. And by then I had already had the idea that I wanted to launch this podcast and I knew what the name of it was going to be. I didn't end up launching it until I guess late October, but I remember mentioning it to him during our reading and he was like, I would love to come on. So let me know when you (laughs) launch it. Uh, so this was a long time coming and I'm really grateful that Mark took the time to chat with me. Um, I sort of see Mark standing in the world of astrology in a sort of unique place. And I I like that when I meet astrologers or counselors or anyone that kind of deals with the interplay of uh, faith and psychology and astrology and mythology, all that stuff. I really appreciate when people have sort of found a niche for themselves. And I think when you hear my conversation with Mark today, you'll understand Uh, what that niche is for him, and that it ties in all of these different aspects of the work that he does. Uh, So not just the work that he does with clients, but also the nature of the therapeutic environment and the counseling environment in general, which I'm fascinated by. You know, I think a lot of people probably have Mark on their podcast to talk about um, just astrology. And what I really wanted to talk to him more about was 
the sort of behind the scenes of astrology and counseling and the psychology behind all of these things and what goes into them and both the benefits and dangers. So that's the conversation today. I am actually going to record a solo bonus episode for my patrons about spirituality and my journey with spirituality and astrology. Uh, I I need to record the bonus episode this month for them, so I figured I would save that rant for Patreon. So if you are not a Patreon supporter, you can head over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates, um, and by donating a very small amount each month, you can help support me make this show a possibility and also get access to things like bonus episodes and weekly columns of inspiration and worksheets, etc. So I'm going to save my big personal rant about my own journey through spirituality for that. Um, and we'll delve right into this conversation, but highly encourage you to check out Patreon for that and other things. And uh, what else? I am headed to New York in a week. Um, I'll be there for five or so days. I'm going to be visiting my dad. I'm actually going to record a podcast with my dad. Um, a few of my friends have suggested I do that. And of course, for me, it's like, well, what would we talk about? Uh, because I'm so familiar with my dad and my dad's life. But then I realized like, I talk about him so frequently on this podcast. And I think it would probably be interesting to hear uh, my dad and I interact. Um, I think as far as father-daughter relationships go, we have a very unique relationship for sure. Um, so I thought that would be just an interesting thing for you guys to listen to. So recording a podcast with my dad, what else am I doing? I will be going to an event with um, two of my favorite authors, Wednesday Martin and Chris Ryan, are doing an event on Tuesday, the 23rd, I believe, at Open Love New York. You can search that online. Um, but they're going to be giving a talk. Highly recommend checking that out. If you're in the area, come say hi. Uh, there should be probably a lot of cool, interesting people there. And um, I think that's all that I'll say today. I'll just let you guys listen to this episode. And uh, I wish you all an amazing week. All right. Um, I am here with Mark Jones. Uh, I will probably let you introduce yourself properly, but you are an astrologer, a therapist, um, trained in psychosynthesis, hypnosis, right? Yes. Um, yes. And I had a reading with Mark last summer, and um, I've talked a fair bit about my journey with astrology and how pairing astrology with traditional therapy made quite a bit of difference as it relates to my own personal growth and self-awareness. Um, and I really appreciated the reading that we had. And we spoke not only about my own journey in astrology, but about um, the field of astrology in general and the nature of helping professions. Um, and Mark teaches a, a counseling skills course and recommends a lot of books that have to deal with this issue, the, the, the sheer power and weight of being a healer or counselor within this space. And so I thought it would be cool to have a conversation that, uh, you know, where we discuss both the benefits and positives, but also the risks and the shadow and nature of this type of work. Um, so I'd love to hear a bit from you about, I guess, further define yourself better than I did, but also how you use these varying tools in your practice. So I was an astrologer first in a way, and reading about certain forms of astrology led me to Jung, Jungian thought in my 20s. I'd studied Kabbalah with a famous Kabbalist in London, and he did an astrology course, and I somehow was earmarked as an astrologer by my group of friends, a group of artists and musicians. And it just sort of stuck in my early 20s. And it was astrological study that led me to psychology. And then when I did a full-on therapy training, the astrology took a back burner for a while. Paradoxically, I was interrogated by some of the people running my therapy training, you know, how can astrology be used? This thing that kind of lays things out for people when fundamentally we're wanting them to express themselves in this space and self reveal who they really are. The irony being that years later, I would end up in Florence in Italy in the archive of Dr. Roberto Asagioli, who founded psychosynthesis only to discover his entire room of papers on astrology and how he'd used it with his clients uh, from the middle of his life, right till the end of his life in his eighties. Um, which my tutors didn't know about. 
and was this kind of hidden dimension within psychology. You see, the advantage of having this evolution is, and I think I'm one of the, the few prominent astrological teachers that has this information in a way, is that I was a therapist for a long time in a private practice in a city, working with anyone, whether I had their chart or not. Now, I had some people's astrology charts and it was useful, but I worked with plenty of people without really knowing it or there was no birth time. And I know what it is to work with people or, or to endeavor to help or guide people without being hung up on astrology. And I've argued many times that the great problem with astrology is how hung up on astrology everyone is, you know, when there's so much about life to get into. And people's stories are much more interesting than some conceptual fantasy of them based on this weird set of symbols, the chart. So I, I like to think I've had, you know, a lot of different experience in different areas. And I've worked with people for like 10 years at a time, people who were serious psychiatric or suicide risks. And because of the astrology, I've done hundreds and hundreds of one-off consultations with people around the world, that, that classic chart reading format. And over the years, as I reintroduced the astrology back into the psychotherapy practice, initially subtly, A, I could test the validity of astrology with people I work with long term. So I wasn't just like reading. It's not like reading a biography of someone or just watching a, a quick Netflix documentary on some pop star and looking at their chart. I mean, I was the primary guide of these people through years and years of their deepest process. And I had the chart and I could track it. I could track their natal chart. I could track movements in it to see what were the deepest concerns of people. And I could test, therefore, the different forms of astrology I'd studied in the 1990s. When in the early 2000s and mid 2000s, I was a therapist. So that was such a great chance to reality test something and not just have it stay in the realm of conceptual potential fantasy, which is one of the great problems of, shall we say, astrology, the new age, even some forms of therapy, that things remain in a conceptual fantasy land where everything's great, man, except for my life, which is unraveling, you know, totally. Um, so that was very useful. But, and then you see to do a thousand sessions with one person and then say, do a thousand sessions with a thousand different people of just one hour or one session, like our conversation or 75 minutes, you get to learn a lot about what makes people tip, tick. And I, I began to condense the extended experience I have with people as their therapist into the impact of one-off readings. So I'm quite comfortable in a short reading discussing someone's developmental psychology and how it might have shaped their life. Because that is really the great thing that psychology offers. Like it doesn't matter what form of modality in psychology, almost everyone agrees that the years zero to five shape your life in ways you're barely conscious of by the time you become say 18 or 21 or whatever point you fantasize you're grown up now and you think you're your own person. You don't realize how much of it was shaped by that early context into which you were born so i specialize in a way in helping people realize the richness of that and how they might make choices about it and not just unconsciously act it out for the rest of their days and what do you feel is the major i mean obviously there are plenty but the major benefit of including astrology within this work and you know do you feel that with the chart you're able to see things that you potentially wouldn't see otherwise or that the person yes. themselves is yes. clear about? Yeah. Yeah. It's an excellent question because on the one hand, whilst I think it's valuable to know what therapy skills are and how you don't have to have a chart to get deep with someone. And sometimes the chart's just an excuse to have a deep conversation in a way. But I remember working with a series of people with very, very serious abuse or early childhood deprivation and I remember contemplating the question, you know, why is a person born into this kind of childhood? And sitting with that question for a very long time in a kind of serious kind of way. This isn't just an abstract musing. When you're working week in, week out with people, you know, effectively been tortured in their childhood in some crucial way. It's a very real question that sobers you up pretty quick. And I remember meditating on the chart a number of times that the chart's like a kind of symbolic map of the potential people carry. Intuitively, I began to realize people are born with material pre-existing. They're born with memories, what I call soul memory. They're born with a pattern or a shape or 
an intrinsic set of experiences that they're magnetized to or drawn to. So people really are born different and they're not just shaped by the culture they're born into or their family, although clearly that's significant, very significant. Um, so it's, it's very complex. It, it, it enabled me to have this multidimensional tool where I could contemplate these deeper questions because I, I began to feel with certain people, say, who'd been very seriously hurt when they were young through really awful circumstance, I began to realize in the rare occasions when these people could genuinely and deeply heal, it was pretty much akin to a religious or spiritual transformation. They, they just had to accept like a deeper understanding of life to make sense of the level of suffering they went through whilst they were still so young, whilst they were so innocent. And I began to realize this element. And I think the work of Viktor Frankl, the man that survived the concentration camps and wrote Man's Search for Meaning, his work touches on this level that you have to find this sense of meaning for your life, if, especially if you want to heal or recover from traumatic experience, because you need that sense of um, the robustness that purpose gives you, the buoyancy. You think of that state, you're not necessarily doing anything different in your day. You may be washing up or tidying the house and you're listless and all you want to do is lie down and it takes some really rocking music just to keep you going. And that day where, you know, rare shaft of sunlight, a bird sings, you're doing the washing up, you're tidying up, and you feel this sense of incredible upliftment, like life's this blessed thing and I'm so grateful to be alive. Exactly the same event, same circumstance, totally different reality. It's like light and dark. And yeah. 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 Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, like, I, I mean, I think for me, the answer to that question, the, the difference between the two clearly has something to do with faith and meaning. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, you know, comparing, let's say, though, a, the meaning that you uh, get through astrology versus, let's say, traditional religion, like, what are the That's... risks of <laughs> faith and meaning, right? Because I do think, for me, that was integral to my growing and learning about myself but i also think to some degree that can create a false self and uh be used in a negative sense as well this sort of blind <laughs> yes right um well there's a series of complexities with that aren't there on the one hand religion or spiritual can create an ideal and as soon as you create an ideal you create a potential tyranny where you're comparing yourself to that ideal and you don't make it um, if we step it back, there's one really simple example, uh, completely, a, a, you know, a high end lawyer was my client as a therapist, I totally had no interest in astrology until he met me and was talking to me, realized I did that. And he respected me. So he looked into it a bit. And I looked at his chart one day, Pluto conjunct the South node in the fourth house, Jupiter square the nodes. And I said, you know, give me a beginner's class because I already knew his life story, but I, I had to show him in a certain way. I said, you give me a beginner's class, people who know the basics of astrology, but don't know my method and give me three hours to teach them. They could all talk about an impact experience in early childhood. They could all talk about the influence of the mother here or something in your early life that shaped your entire belief system, Pluto square, Jupiter, Jupiter square, the nodes, Pluto on the South node. And indeed this man was the second child. Uh, the first had been born out in, Africa in the new world where they were treated like lords. They had servants. Their life was a certain way. They came back to post-war Britain, gray weather. The country was in ruins. It was bankrupt after the war. And the mother associated the second child, him, with her depression coming back to her roots and feeling so uncomfortable there. And his life was shaped by the mother's depression. Mm. And I, the fact that I could show him that the part of the chart to do with early childhood, it just literally the physical shape of it would be that obvious and point him to that. He was stunned because he, he had assumed for years, and this was his problem coming to see me as a therapist, the futility of that, the randomness or the futility. But actually, if you begin to unravel, because I'm, I'm sure a number of people listening to this podcast feel they're stuck in patterns in their life stuck in relationships that aren't fulfilling or why do I keep meeting the same type of boyfriend or girlfriend or why do they always leave me? And there are often roots in childhood. This man had come because he'd married a woman who'd had a very serious mental disability, had almost killed herself and it had shaped his life caring for her. 
and then we've gone back into his childhood. And I would say to you, by the way, just as a litmus test for reality, if you're in a relationship and it just feels exactly like the last relationship that ended badly, and maybe even the one before that, just stop right now and search your childhood, search your childhood for patterns, the way that emotional reality was laid down for you. Because in there somewhere will be the roots of why you keep attracting the same kind of disappointing people. Because it's like life's trying to present us with this opportunity to see through it. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the most broad existential question of our time. But in this mode of patterns, right, do you see, I mean, I'm sure you see in your client base, but the the extent to which we can grow and evolve, are we stuck in these <laughs> repetitive patterns? And what is the potential um, for us to grow yeah. out of them? And, and how do you see people like get stuck in? Because I think this is also another unfortunate symptom of um, probably more so traditional psychology than astrology, but getting stuck in these negative thought patterns and seeing all of our desires or desires toward enjoyment as, as being uh, coming from somewhere negative. Um, and how do we kind of reframe that and, and see ourselves as deserving of actual happiness and that that's not coming from a place of lack? So a series of <clears throat> complex questions there. Yeah. I mean, first, the broader picture. This is the paradox. This is the paradox of healing, in my view, or one of the central ones. Our potential is incredible. It's like unbelievable the potential people have to not just recover, but transcend and overcome their suffering and their hurt and expand themselves into new possibility in their life. Unbelievable. And yet, paradox radar, you know, on high alert. The de facto response of most people is they don't change. If you, if you don't <clears throat> invest a high energy fuel of some kind of awareness or breakthrough, you don't change. Most people don't change. In fact, people live whole lives and they don't really change. Or people have an arrested development experience at age 10 when they fail the preschool exam and they feel intellectually inferior, and they don't go to the middle school that was the one their parents expected them to, and they're 75, and they still have a chip on their shoulder about their intellect, and they feel insecure when people talk about certain things and they get defensive. Because unless you can create a solid center inside yourself that is prepared to dispassionately but compassionately witness your reality, then you can't change. Because it really, at our best, we're like a editorial suite it's like adobe premiere or something final cut you lit you literally have the creative capacity to look at the stockpile of film footage of your life and edit it into the kind of documentary or um, cinema verite that you are and yet we're not doing it we're not using that capacity yeah and do you think that this is because i would always get stuck in this too i think when i first started going down this path and um I think for various reasons decided I, you know, was both capable and willing to do this work. And one of my first reactions was to others who weren't was like, well, if I can do it, they can. Um, and I had to kind of sit with that a lot and, and kind of go through in my mind, like, is this capacity to change evolutionary, right? Predestined or, do we all have the tools in order to grow and evolve in this sense, right? Is this something that we can all do truly, or are there certain ways in which some of us are uh, <clears throat> unable just based on privilege or accessibility, et cetera? Well, I mean, this is so complex. I mean, talk about, you, we could just spend several hours just talking about this, question because yeah. it's so subtle and most healers and therapists don't address this kind of level i mean do i think there's privilege in one sense yes in one sense no i think there is a kind of privilege but it's not the usual ones that people position in the world you know rich white male or you were born to money or you went to this kind of school i mean clearly that will help your societal standing or what have you but my interest isn't people's societal standing my interest isn't what kind of car you drive it's about you know, your inner truth, the expression of your inner truth. And some people, you know, even though they, they survive terrible things, they don't lose that capacity. And others, you know, it's like they've never known that capacity. Now, it doesn't mean that capacity is not doesn't exist. 
So that's the paradox. I treat it from a spiritual viewpoint where there's an open secret. You know, you are a divine radiance. That radiance is given to you by life itself. That's, that's the sacred nature of life itself, that by being born and being a sentient being, you radiate sacred individuality and, and your deepest self is true, is inherently meaningful, inherently beautiful even. And that's privilege. There's a privilege to know that. That's genuine privilege, to know the open secret, to know who you are on that level. And that transcends the apparent social divides because, you know, I work with a lot of very, very high-end, very successful people, and I work with a lot of and have done in the past very struggling kind of people, and they're both unhappy. You know, rich people have unhappy lives with nicer houses, but it doesn't fundamentally change their existential, moral, or psychological situation inherently. Only their inner orientation to their truth, if you like, or the, the truth of their life path does that. And that's, you know, cross any kind of ordinary privilege in the world. The Bhagavad Gita discusses these principles from a spiritual point of view. If people are interested in that. The, the concept is shraddha, you know, your faith or, or your heart fire is a better translation. You know, <clears throat> some people get abused by their parents. They're severely psychologically and sexually molested. And a percentage of them will go on to abuse others. And then someone will come along and they'll become what I call a pattern breaker. They'll just go, yeah, I've been treated like shit. And yeah, I've got no, <clears throat> no tank of love to really draw on to make that different in my life. But I'm not going to treat anyone like shit. And they just decide to break the pattern. And I've worked with a number of these people. I mean, I, that's why I coined the phrase the pattern breaker. Because they're prepared to give what they didn't receive, which is the hardest thing of all, because you have to almost imagine it, you know, breathe it into being with the passion of your own life because you never received it. People who were treated awfully as children who then were exceptional parents to their children, which is so incredibly hard because all your programming is, is missing those real nourishing things. And that fascinates me. You know, what is the phenomena that leads to being a pattern breaker? And in a way, how can we support those people? Because I, I, anyone listening now who feels like they might be that person in potential in their life or in their family system, I, I, I say to you, it's a profound turning point in the life of the soul to make a choice, to take a creative risk that you are able to stand in something that no one supported you in or to give something that no one gave to you. And it's a massive turning point. In my view, that, that changes subtly the entire balance of the world, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> and you do, you've done, you do workshops on some concepts similar to this, right? Like, are you able to see this in the chart? I guess both the capacity to break patterns and then the point at which people... <clears throat> no, is a simple answer. <laughs> you, can see, you can see signatures that might refer to its potential, mm -hmm. but you can only reality test this through people's reality their life or their being there's right. no marker in the chart that goes this person will respond this way no it doesn't yeah. exist uh, it's a very seductive fantasy that leads a lot of people into astrology a lot of controlling intellectual type people who want to find the single answer like in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy novels you know the answer to life was 42 now we have to find the question and it's a whole other experiment to find the question yeah that 42 point that kind of answer for life's complexity doesn't exist in my view actually the answer to a lot of the richer things in life is to live is to live through it you can't answer grief you can't answer the death of a parent or the death of a loved one there's no there's no answer to that there's just living through it and the way that person's being enriched your life even though they're not here anymore yeah. and there's no you can't tutor that and it's hard for the young to understand this I mean, and forgive me for sounding like a patronizing old man, but many of the people listening to this will be younger than me. And it's hard to realize when you're young, but certain aspects of life experience you can't compensate for. I, I thought I could. <laughs> I was a clever young man, you know, and I thought that, you know, meant I wasn't affected by my dysfunctional family or various things. And a therapy training showed me I was wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's good it did because I feel like sometimes <laughs> it doesn't for people and then it gets worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, and that, well, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because yeah. if there is a part of the self that will defend, if you're a very highly trained person with a high intellect and you have, say, a therapy-type badge or, or an authority badge, you can be even better defended. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I. it's funny. I When I... I was in therapy kind of my whole life and nothing really happened. I wasn't really ready to do the work and had really no capacity to understand what I was doing and my patterns. And I remember going into therapy this time and sitting down and being like, I have such a capacity to lie to you and I will, or, or I'll have that desire, right? Like I think I've come into therapy for the past couple decades just to, validate my own stories my own bullshit yes. stories and like and I'm really good at it because <laughs> like, I am smart and I think the smarter you are I mean and I see this a lot with people because I exist in unconventional spaces and it's so easy to use like unconventional beliefs to uh excuse our bullshit exactly yeah um, oh, it's so easy to use absolutely anything the human being, the human animal is, is the shit show. Humans will take anything they love and turn it to shit. That, that's our great skill in a way. Because as soon as you love something, you're attached to it. And as soon as you're attached, the grasping part, the vulnerable creature that doesn't want to die, the vulnerable creature that doesn't want to be alone, just grasps and just tries to hold it and turns it, turns the good thing awry. And there's some great books i mean woody allen holds one of them up in uh is it annie hall ernst becker's denial of death fantastically old school psychoanalytic book but it just rams home the point you know half of our lives is an attempt to deny death um i think it's an amazing turning point you've reached by the sounds of it i mean i can't tell you how refreshing it is as a practitioner to hear the person's awareness of that because I used to say, you know, people would come to me back when I was a therapist in a city office, kind of going, I'm so into this. I can't, you know, I just can't wait to work on this. And I'd be like, I'm sorry, but it feels like you're just not going to come back next week. <laughs> they wouldn't come back, you know, even though you called them on it. Um, yeah. It's like the direct path to manifestation in your life is, is truth. It really is orientating yourself to your vision of the truth, your vision of courage and integrity is what will turn your life around most effectively, most dynamically. Because the ways we lie to ourselves is also the way we lie to others and their holding patterns. The person who's settling for a certain relationship because it makes them feel secure when they didn't feel secure as a child, but they'll also never feel truly happy and so on. They're all like holding patterns. Right. Oh, it doesn't matter. I know this. I know drinking this much isn't really great for me, but I just need to do it now while I'm doing this high stress job. Well, it doesn't get less stressful, you know, being a lawyer or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit. Cause I want to talk ab about your work that you do with counseling skills. Yes. And I guess first get your opinion on the fact that astrology, unlike psychoanalysis doesn't have rigorous structure as it relates to ethics. And yes. um, I know there's a differing of opinion amongst astrologers about whether that's something that should exist or shouldn't. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, there's a paradox with regulation. Is the world of therapy and psychology better policed than the world of astrology? Clearly it is. I mean, therapists still make an enormous mess of things. And I, I've had a surprising number of people, what, just two or three, but I still think that's a lot. People share with me just in the last few months, a therapeutic encounter, which led to an affair. You know, they had, they slept with their therapist kind of stuff that, that still goes on, which is amazing. I mean, it just was ruinous for both people in the one case, especially the therapist. So policing that field doesn't prevent catastrophic error. Um, the disadvantage is that licensing then gets tied into the prevailing paradigms of the existing culture. So you have an institute like Pacifica based on the work of Jung in the West Coast, and they struggle to get licensing for some of their programs because you, even, someone, in my view, is creatively powerful and serious, a man as Jung, is academically 
pushed into the background because we're living in a predominantly materialistic, you know, scientific orientated culture. Uh, so that's the danger. If you get regulation of astrology, <laughs> how do you regulate something that's already outside of the mainstream paradigm of the culture? And the danger of regulating it is you narrow its um, psychological, spiritual perspective because the culture itself is narrow in that area. But then on the other hand, what's so obvious and what Dane Rudyard pointed out in a number of books, for people who don't know it, a major classical musician of the 20th century and a theosophist and a, a real thinker of the philosophical and technical aspects of astrology, he, he, he pointed out, really anyone can just make up a fairly unsubstantiated view with astrology. You can just read a couple of books, put together your own weird take on it. And if you find a little niche or niche for yourself in the world, you might get some conference gigs on that basis. And five years later, you're addressing a room full of people on the basis of your one idea that you've touted around the world that's hardly ever been tested beyond a handful of times you've spoken to people about their chart. And even then you had a paradigm blindness because you wanted to believe that your system works and you get this crazy situation where astrologers are saying to people yes your father was like this young woman and they're going no he wasn't and the astrologer's going no well you're just in denial about it <laughs> it's like wow you know fantastically arrogant and vain and and just assuming that my way of looking at astrology must be more real than the person's life and that's why a lot of my counseling skills work it critiques astrology on that level. It, it, it asks that astrology is always made secondary to a person's life, to their being. That you, your soul, your heart, your mind is more important than your chart. Yeah, it's funny because I, I mean, don't have much experience. I've been studying astrology for a couple of years, but I went into this place, I think, after going really deep into it where... I felt the need to completely pull back from it and, and actually only utilize it observationally. <laughs> so allow life to happen. Right. I mean, I'm, I still give readings and such, but at least in terms of my own life and my own learning, um, it's been meaningful and I think necessary to like step back and just look because I, when you have these skills and you have this knowledge and you understand these archetypes, there's, almost an insatiable desire to apply meaning when it isn't there. Um, exactly. Yeah. I think that's where the over-intellectual aspect comes in and the over-preparation. People mm -hmm. spend eight hours preparing a one-hour chart conversation with someone. And I understand you have to practice. But the problem is it's not just study, is it? It's this projected fantasy that you need to have worked out who that person is before they come through your door or before you speak to them on Skype or Zoom. I mean, what doctor has the fantasy that they can tell your blood work by just looking at you as you come onto the Skype conversation? It's like, why would astrologers be better than that? It's an investigative process and a co-creative one at that. Um, I think your natural stepping back is that you're, you're pacing yourself, aren't you? So you don't get too immersed and you don't just indulge that part of the mind that wants to control reality and outcomes and, and somehow have all its questions answered. And it's a dangerous part because it's the part that would kill the mystery of life, kill the beauty and mystery of life and have it just as an explanation instead. Um, I myself have gone from this position of early work, highly intuitive, combining the work I did with clients into a vision, a real big vision of astrology. And then recent work, the last few years, heavily research orientated. Like why talk about transformational moments? And my whole focus is transformational astrology without studying them. So suddenly my work's about when Lennon met McCartney or when Gandhi got thrown off a train and, and formed his view of peaceful revolution. And it's like, you can actually find the dates for that. You know, you can look at these things to the, roughly the day and then start to, you know, actually look what was going on. Right. Um, and I think that observational aspect is an important desire to be more truthful, isn't it? It's probably yeah. growing in you. So you're not just in your own subjective fantasy about what it's all about. Yeah. And I, I mean, I also completely did it. I think while telling myself I wasn't going to, make assumptions or predict in some way that was completely unrealistic. It totally happened. And I watched it happen with other people that I respected as well. And it was like, yes. Oh, okay. I mean, and I'm grateful for it because I think I needed or people in general, I think you sort of need to be freaked out 
by the capacity to which this could go wrong. <laughs> and yes, you are, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and if you're responsible, you respond to it, don't you? Like you're freaked out. You know, I'm a parent recently and, you know, the degree of responsibility and meaning you have for this little being. And if that doesn't freak you out, there's probably something wrong with you because the freak out produces the contemplation that leads to the deepening, that leads to the deeper response. But you see in astrology, right, there used to be this thing. You go to conferences and the famous astrologer be up there and they'd be giving you the story of the predictive moment, the great time they predicted this election or that thing. And everything's goes around the one a few t- the couple of times they made some big breakthrough for, and it's all ego stroking isn't it it's all about the peacocking it's all about me really when you work with clients when you care about just human life transforming it doesn't i always say like you know can you predict the past <laughs> how to predict the past not the future can you get into what formed someone in childhood and show them how to walk out of the labyrinth that if they faced a barrage of criticism you know inner lack or deficiency because they weren't loved enough how do you get out of that labyrinth well you can't get out of it unless you've identified it and in that sense you're better off predicting what shaped a person because if you can understand what shaped someone and give them space to find their own response to that shape they will naturally unfold after the reading it won't require your powerful telling from on high and signposting the amazing. And I told this person that they would do this. And then they did. And I am great. Right. Yeah. That's what it becomes, doesn't it? Rather than the, hum- the humble fascination that they went on to do this great thing. It's about them. It ought to be about them. Not just the kind of vainglorious attitude of the famous astrologer and right. his or her great predictive insight. It's funny because there's a there was a moment in our reading that I think I must have mentioned on this podcast like six or seven times by now. But I was telling you in some degree of detail what I wanted to do with my life and what I wanted to create, and you almost did the opposite of that. You kind of said, and not to be patronizing at all, but you said, "And you're quite young," and <laughs> you said, "You said so. Don't allow the specificity of your you know desire to limit." the breath of possibility, right? So hold on to the energy of whatever this thing is and allow it to unfold. And I can't tell you the degree of difference that that made in my life. And like, I now just, I mean, less than a year later, am astonished by the extent to which all like, and that's all I have to do, right? Just hold on to that energy. And then anything that comes into my life, it doesn't really matter specifically what it is it's like does it fit into that feeling or does it not fit into that feeling um and kind of allow it to unfold in and of itself right like you did the opposite of like yes this is the thing you're gonna do like actually even the thing you think you're gonna do might not (laughs) (laughs) well and you see the sheer willingness you had the dynamism that's what creates that life manifests around the electromagnetism of your being your being and its power magnetizes reality. If you get hung up on the specifics, what are you doing? You're just bargaining, aren't you? You're just negotiating with life. Why negotiate with life? Why, when you're young and so full of energy, why limit that to these series of conceptual possibilities that can't possibly be fully understood? It's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad it worked out for you. I mean, I just, I look back at my own life. That's why I say I'm not being patronizing. I mean it because I look back at myself in my 20s. I look back at the things I would reach out and put my hand on my shoulder and say to me, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't find it patronizing at all. I thought it was extremely helpful. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about the nature of like the therapeutic relationship. And um, can you talk a bit about the types of people, uh, like this book that you'd recommended to me, Power in the Helping Professions and the risk and uh, type of personality that can go into these spaces and grossly, you know, abuse power. <laughs> well, there's, there's a joke in therapy circles or, or I made it up. I'm not sure. Like what, what, what's the single greatest requirement for becoming a, a good therapist, a crappy childhood. <laughs> yeah. Being so, fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's what draws most people into it. And there is a danger in the helping professions generally that people haven't fully understood the impact of their own damage on the work. And this can range from the kind of uh, mumsy, mumsy counselor 
who's kind of like they're there dear i hope it'll work out let's have a cup of tea and a chat about it kind of caring counselor bigger not having resolved their own issues with their own children say or, or just the blindness of caring for people all the time i mean who can who can care for people all the time it, it's important to have care but this idea that that's all you're going to do in that space that there's not going to exist any challenge or any it's it's where I respect a guy called Carl Rogers enormously who in, invented a kind of the person-centered approach, but I don't agree with the way it's practiced predominantly. So I don't follow that approach. But, you know, this total care for the person, you're putting yourself on the line and not judging or preempting them. That I agree with as a stance. But people take it to the point where they won't discuss anything. You know, theory, challenge. I found people, people like yourself, they respond to ideas. The, the, the books you were telling me we spoke about that you've read in between and how they've helped you like like Guggenball Craig's Power in the Helping Professions, mm-hmm. which is available as a free PDF online, I think, still. Uh, and it's an excellent analysis of pastoral care, even lawyers, attorney client privilege and the way it's abused, and priests and therapist types. And you know, he raises a number of complexities, but I would say the common one is to be unaware of your own dysfunction and damage and then get mired in it with your clients. And you don't need to have sorted everything out to help people. I haven't sorted everything out, but I'm very aware right. of what I have and what I haven't. That, that's the key. And so you know which is which when you go into intense circumstances. The other thing that's commonly not understood is the complexity of what we could call erotic transference, which is really in a nutshell, you know, people think they're falling in love with their helping figure or there's the potential of a helping figure to fall in love with a client or both at the same time, which is the real hardcore one. But I would argue a great amount of this stems from the power of the child's feelings, especially in deeper therapeutic work when it's a longer term connection. Um, I have a very young daughter, less than a year old, and it's very immersive. You know, there's some very intense love and this being is right upon you, you know? Our daughter wants to be very close to my wife and I. And it's absolutely visceral. You know, she lives for it. She lights up because of your presence, your skin, your breath, your heat, your warmth. She's like a clumsy lover or a very invasive dentist occasionally. She likes to stick her fingers right into my mouth. (laughs) She's right in your space. And children need that. They have this powerful eros drive to understand life, this dynamic energy to embrace the world. And they're shown that through their parents and their parents' response. Now, any gaps in that leave a legacy where the child's eros, the love and desire the child has for life, is muted in some way. And if that person finds a therapeutic figure or that unmet part of the therapeutic figure finds that in a person... Then you get this charge. People think they're falling in love with their helper sometimes, whereas really what it means is their child feels safe enough to love again. And that's what's so problematic when that's acted on, because there's this inherently incestuous quality, really. There's an inherent age of inappropriateness, even though it appears like two consensual adults. Mm-hmm. There's this part of the one where the child emerged in this more unconscious way. And then paradoxically, that also explains things like hate in the transference. You know, sometimes the person that helps you the most is the person you hate the most when you have very powerful unresolved feelings for early childhood authority figures or you have very deep unresolved trauma. And then it's more like a borderline personality dynamic. You know, I feel so chaotic inside. I need the figure to help me. The figure comes along. They're like a savior to me. Thank God. I found my personal Jesus, as Depeche Mode might have put it. And then... When it turns to hell again, I hate them. Yeah. Do you think part, uh, I just read this amazing book called The First Stone uh, that was about a situation in the early 90s in Australia where two women accused their uh, university's headmaster of sexual harassment. And we don't really know at the end of the story, it was like he touched their breast and did he or didn't he? And we don't know. But the whole purpose of the book And the narrative was about the nature of power um, as it relates to, you know, romantic feelings, sexual feelings. Do you feel like that is playing into this as well? So not just the desire to the transference of love, but also the uh, inherent power dynamics within the therapeutic space. And uh, comparatively to, I think, personally, the inherent power, uh, power dynamics in sex in general. Well, that's very complex, isn't it? I mean, 
there's the complexity of the therapeutic encounter. There's the complexity of the teacher power type dynamic. And then, yeah, power dynamics in sex. I mean, that's not a very PC thing to talk about at this point <laughs> in our world. Do we? In, in a world which seems to reduce in a desire to include everybody in a unity project, the, the heart's in the right place. There's a danger that everything's becoming homogenized. And for example, a certain, you know, you would have to say just a male, female sexuality level, just stating the obvious, just biologically as a fundamental right. difference that implies something about the archetypal nature of um, the contact between the sexes in a heterosexual union. And, you know, arguably that's very meaningful. I think it is. You know, I really do. Um, I think the key, though, power is very important here. And it, it has to be understood power is not a bad thing. And power is not just this thing that's socially divided up by this unfair world. You know, that's a projection of the victimized and disempowered part of ourselves. And it's possible to claim our personal power. In fact, it could be argued it's extremely important to do so and to take risks with it. Um, I, I think there's a danger sometimes. Certainly many of the traumatized people I've worked with, the idea of authority or power has been separated from love. Like they're just in two different universes. And a lot of people feel that way now. Like it must be inherently bad to be a political leader or head of an organization. You must just be a proto-fascist or, or a schmuck of some kind or out for the money, you know? There's a very low um, opinion of leadership and power at this point. It's a Saturn failure in astrological theme terms, and I think it's dangerous, you know, because it's important. Um, power is an important part of the overall human experience and, and the integrity that, that comes from knowing you could act in a certain way, but you don't because you have standards or you live by a certain code. You know, if you don't feel powerful, how can you live by that code that matters to you? Right. Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, I've been witness to and involved in a good deal of these types of situations and interactions, none being that serious. Um, but I, I remember going into my therapist at one point and to your point of like, it's not very PC to talk about. And I'm always someone that's like, I want to talk about everything, the more taboo, the better. And I said to her, like, why aren't we talking about this? It seems so commonplace. And she was like, well, even in my circles, we talk about it a lot, you know, within the therapeutic space, because that's where they exist. And I didn't see those conversations happening much outside. And I guess for me, what felt comforting uh was the degree of uh of seeing these happen over and over and over again and that almost like it isn't bad or unnatural that it's happening i think we make mistakes in what we choose to act on or how we choose to see that situation right yeah. for ourselves but the well, fact I, that it's going on seems to me quite common <laughs> and natural well uh, exactly and one of the for me, we're, we're transitioning from a written culture, which came out of an oral culture before. You know, the earliest forms of literature were oral tradition. People memorized them. Mm -hmm. Then we went into a written culture. Now we're going into a visual culture. And media is presenting us with so much information that it's hard to discern the complexity. You know, there are some very bad apples in this world, aren't there? There always have been. And in some extreme cases... You know, some Hollywood mogul genuinely, you know, ought to be imprisoned for his actions towards people. And then there's a natural response within the collective. And then, the, then there's a danger within the collective that the ordinary play of meaning between people is homogenized or uh, in an attempt to make certain things safe, which are actually really an issue of criminal imprisonment. Mm -hmm. um, some interplay between the sexes, for example, is reduced, you know, because... I don't know, you know, I, I, it's not my area of speciality, but it, it occurs to me that there has to be a way that people find each other attractive and show that in a way that's playful and meaningful. Otherwise, people stop enjoying that part of their life or finding a way to be together. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of concern and fear about that at this point. I, and I know that there's a lot of sensitive guys, for example, afraid of expressing a certain side of themselves because of the kind of toxic masculinity of a small number and maybe even just saying a small number, some people would attack, but it's, you know, it's institutionalized and systemic through all of our culture. 
Um, I, I am the great one. I'm with Jung here. You know, a million zeros never adds up to a one. You know, I believe in the individual. That was from an essay of his called The Undiscovered Self. I, I believe in a kind of individual freedom and that, you know, terrible things happen in the world, but we didn't, you know, we didn't want them to. So many people don't want them to, do they? And they're left in this position where, I don't know, they're frightened of themselves because of those bad things. And really, that's the, the hold that trauma gets on the world. Trauma tyrannizes the world, not just through the people who are directly traumatized, but the ripple effect out from it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, sorry. yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's such so unfortunate that we've normalized the blame and the pointing fingers, because I think that really ties into the lack of, you know, journey of self-awareness that we need to go through. Like if we are, you know, I was reading uh, Robert A. Johnson's He and She, yes. and, and many books talk about this as well, uh, coming from Jung, but the idea that, you know, women are projecting their inner masculine and men are projecting their inner feminine, um, and not just feminine and masculine, but everything in general, right? And until we point yes. the finger back at ourselves, um, and, and I mean, it's, 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 it has proven to be true for me. Like what I hate about others is absolutely what I hate most about myself. I mean, over and over and over again, that's what I see. So it's like, anytime I have that inclination to say that person's at fault, that's the problem. I can turn that back around on myself and recognize where I'm coming from within that, what my own stuff has, um, you know, infused onto that belief system. Uh, and that's been incredibly meaningful, but extremely, I think, difficult for a lot of people to. So powerful, though, in what you're talking about. This is really the crucial part of Jung's individuation project, that you yeah. withdraw your projections onto the world and bring them back to your own psyche, at least temporarily, at least long enough to understand them. I mean, some degree of projection onto the world is, is essential, perhaps, for meaning in most people's lives, but the degree to which we do it. And I, it's strange through being a therapist, that maybe I've done 10, 12,000 hours with people, like one-on-one -on -one like this in my life. And at certain points, it's almost like someone's taken a cataract off my eye, you know? I just see things in a different way from having had this level of deep conversations with people of so many different kinds over so many years. And you realize so many people protesting this and that, so many people appalled at this and that, and appalling things go on in the world. Oh, and they are real, you know, and suffering is real, as the Buddha most poignantly pointed out. But people realize years later just how often their view of personal relationships or what was going on in the world was colored by their unresolved material how we're all just carrying this baggage with us, like some huge piece of oversized luggage that, you know, we're struggling to get through the flight checkout. Yeah. Hanging in the people where we go. And it, it's so helpful to own that. It's so challenging. There's so much shame for so many people. They haven't been in an environment where anyone's ever encouraged them to take that step, but it's so worthwhile to just stop where you're going for a bit, look down and see what's chained around your ankle, what's holding you back yeah well this has been amazing um i really appreciate having the conversation one question that i ask although i know probably in this case it will be challenging but i always ask my guests if they could recommend one book <laughs> to everyone listening what would it be having to do with our conversation or otherwise um your own or somebody else's um letting go the pathway of surrender by david r hawkins awesome <clears throat> cool. a book with like 1200 just a ridiculous number of views on amazon and they average five star on amazon.com yeah it's the most it's just a simple direct book about values in life um one final thought this thing you were talking about owning yourself yeah it's so big people don't worry it's just not something that can be done overnight it's a lifelong project mm. take a meaningful step if, if you listen to this and it resonates with you, don't try and do the whole thing either. Just take a meaningful step. Yeah, sit down and list. List someone that really pisses you off. List their qualities and ask yourself where you stand with regard to those qualities or how they apply with you or your ex. Or, or God forbid, some of the things your ex said about you 
that you didn't want to believe. Maybe have a friend sit with you and just explore if any of it was true. Because although people say things in a very hurtful context, it doesn't mean that that some of them at least aren't true. It's worth exploring those things if you feel empowered enough to, because it will will massively transform your life. Right. Yeah, and I think accepting if we, you know, decide to find meaning in everything, accepting that all of those people and all of those situations are mirrors <laughs> or are there for a specific reason. They're not some random fluke that um, has no reflection on where we are in our own journey. Well, and this is really right. I mean, what you just said, just buried in that sense, you know, we choose to accept everything as meaningful. Yeah. I mean, that's a game changer right there. Yeah. Just say yes to your life on that level. Assume everything in it is meaningful. Right. Change everything over time and radically empower you. Nihilism is a terrible, terrible thing. Destroys people. Destroys them. Um, Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and your work? On Pluto School. PlutoThePlanetSchool.com. And there's loads of free resources on there. Podcasts, essays, blogs. And then there's uh, paid content to do with the Transformational Astrology course and the Counseling Skills course. But really there's a lot to explore without having to make any investment of any kind, really a lot of high quality stuff. I hope you check it out. Awesome. And a very high quality book list that I have (laughs) read a lot. Yeah, that's up up there too. Yeah. Yeah. I've just tried to condense some of my favorite things. When I was a therapist, just timing, sometimes someone reading a book, you know, it could change Mm -hmm. life, read the right book at the right time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mark. This has been very enjoyable. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Hello again. Thanks for listening to that. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I rarely will go back and listen to conversations that I've had in full after I record them, but I was so excited about this one that this morning I definitely just sat back and listened to it again and gained so much more insight. So I hope it had a similar effect on all of you. Um, the song I'm going to play today is called Morning Sun by Melody Gardot. If you remember at the beginning of the episode, I talked about how during this podcast, the sun was rising and it was this really hopeful and inspiring feeling. Um, and the song without a doubt, plays into all of those vibes. So uh, again, if you're interested in hearing more about my own take on spirituality and astrology, um, head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates. I will be recording the bonus episode this month on that topic. And um, that's it. Talk to you all next week. That sunny morning waiting on us now There's a light at the end of the tunnel We can be very free Just take it from me Honey child, let me tell you now, child That morning sun greet us with a loving light so warm that morning sun is here to meet us waiting on the waking up of everyone mm-hmm. she ain't gonna quit till you're smiling all Tell you, child. Let me tell you, honey, child. That morning sun has come to greet you. 
She's peeking round the corner just to win, just to meet you. Shining down on all your troubles. Let me tell you, child. Let me tell you, honey, child. 'Cause this world wasn't made for dreaming. This world wasn't made for you. This world made for believing in all the things you're gonna do now, honey, child. Let me tell you now, child. Oh. Tell your child.